Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast podcast, and I'm your host, Phil Coover of Shank Annis Tepper Campbell. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric commercial real estate podcast utilizing attorneys, finance, and, of course, real estate professionals to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues, descriptions of common legal and business terms in the community, and entertaining discussion. We are bringing to you actually a reboot of one of our favorite interviews. So this is going to be Bob Cavoto of 2024 Site, which is one of our most popular interviews. But we're recording this intro on November 10th. And last night it was uh, the Roosevelt Real Estate Gala, which is the Marshall Bennett Institute at the Roosevelt University. And it's a great program that they have. It actually, we've talked on this podcast many times about real estate as a connection industry, and it seems like the people who succeed in real estate are people that were uh, had friends or connections into the industry. But what Roosevelt's doing is, is it's uh, created a program which is really gearing students to give them practical uh, skills so that they can transition right into this uh, you know, booming industry right now. And it's a great program. I've been going to this real estate gala personally uh, with my firm, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, for years. And we started going when they gave Michelle Panovich, who's the Lifetime Achievement Award. She was our, our first podcast guest. And that was when I started going in 2013. I've been every year since. I've seen some wonderful speakers. I saw Chris Kennedy speak a few years ago. And they do it at the Four Seasons Hotel and it's to raise money for this uh, Roosevelt University program that they have and I think that we're going to actually try to have one of the uh, the representatives from the Marshall Bennett Institute come on the podcast as a guest in the future years or the coming months. She agreed last night at the gala to come on so we're going to have her come on and to talk more about that program and what it's doing for the community and how it's trying to impact the industry. But anyway, I saw that 2024 site, as well as some of the, our other guests that we've had in the podcast, were uh, sponsors of the program last night. And uh, so I was thinking, since this is Thanksgiving coming up, and then we have some of the uh, Christmas and other holidays, we're going to just re-release the Bob Cavoto interview. Bob is uh, works for 2024 site, and. He has, he's the former CFO of a $1 billion entertainment real estate company. He was the president of Merrill Lynch Realty in Chicago. Uh, he's a University of Illinois guy, and he is a executive recruiter for the real estate industry. He just gives us great advice on how to become an executive in the real estate is, industry, about the corporate world in general. He's just a pleasure to speak to. And I've really gotten just constant positive feedback about this interview. And our inter- our podcast, I'm happy to say, has just recently taken off in terms of our listener base. And I know that it, our listener base has doubled, maybe even tripled since we released this interview. So I just want to say thank you to all of those people that are out there telling your friends and spreading the word about our little podcast. And... Uh, I want to give all those new listeners an opportunity to hear Bob's speech. I, I certainly have gone back a couple times and listened to it again just to hear Bob uh, wax on about the corporate world. I, I love it. So anyway, I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, a few other updates. I also wanted to thank the Chicago Bar Association. They recently gave 
myself an opportunity and uh, my partner Bob Tepper an opportunity to uh, present on a panel about commercial evictions and commercial foreclosures. I was the moderator of the panel and we also had two judges to talk about the procedures and best practices for commercial evictions and commercial foreclosures. And there's some really good materials from that program. So I, I mentioned this just to thank the CBA for having us and to say if you wanted the materials, the written materials from that program that gives uh, some great tips and the basic procedures for handling those types of issues, uh, feel free to contact me and I can at least give you our materials from that program and then I would also ask the the other speakers from that program permit their permission if you wanted their materials as well. But I just wanted to say thank you and let my listeners know that that's available to us. And then I also just want to talk about we're reposting an old uh, favorite interview of ours right now, but we have some excellent podcasts coming up that we're gonna we're gonna give you one in December, and then we're gonna come with several great topics at the start of 2018. We have uh, a representative from HFF who's come on. He's got this fantastic Southern drawl. He's out of their Atlanta office to talk about. Um, some interesting developments uh, and then we have someone coming on to talk about the Willis Tower redevelopment that's a half a billion dollars with a B and what they're doing with the Willis Tower I can't wait for that one we've just been trying to nail down a time to do that interview and trying to get our schedules to coincide and then we have some other really great topics. So I'm very excited about what we're going to bring to you in twenty in early 2018. Very excited about what we're going to bring to you in December. And I hope you enjoy this uh, episode with with Bob Cavoto. If anyone wants to get in touch with us, uh, you can reach us at solutioncenter at satcltd.com. Again, that's solutioncenter at satcltd.com. And I also want to thank the SATC Solution Center L3C which is the Education Development Division of the law firm Shank Annis Tepper Campbell for uh, producing this podcast. Enjoy the interview. Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast, and I'm joined today by Bob Cavoto, who's the founder and CEO of 2020 Foresight. Welcome to the program, Bob. Thanks for inviting me. So Bob is uh, executive coach, executive recruiter. Bob, what do you? what's your, your pitch when you first meet someone and they say, what do you do for a living? Well, really, it depends on who I'm meeting. If I'm meeting an unemployed executive who needs our coaching and job finding services, I'm an executive coach and a job finding expert. If I'm meeting a company, whether it be in Chicago, Los Angeles, or New York, or anywhere around the country where they need to hire an executive, then I'm an executive recruiter slash headhunter. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. I, I've changed the way I phrase what type of lawyer I am, depending on who I'm talking to as well. <laughs> um, well, let's just talk a little bit about your background, because you were previously the CFO of a $1 billion entertainment and real estate company, and you were also the president of Merrill Lynch's Realty in uh, Chicago. It's just a, a real estate investment banking program. Um, tell us a little bit about that, how you transitioned to 2024 site, why you wanted to. 
Well, you know, it's it's a story of that starts when I graduated from Illinois and with an accounting degree and worked for Arthur Anderson, I say, for six miserable years. Uh, I was, three of those years were in auditing and three of those years were in consulting. Um, it was invaluable experience I got there, but I really didn't care for corporate politics and the bureaucracy that were involved in larger organizations. So taking all the skills I, uh, I learned from Anderson, I started at Merrill Lynch Realty as their Merrill Lynch Realty CFO uh, for the entire entity in the United States. And enjoyed that, but still encountered corporate bureaucracy and, sure. and other issues like that. Then after three years, I became the president of Merrill Lynch Realty in Chicago, and I really enjoyed that. Um, until um, the um, the bureaucracy and the politics and everything kind of in, you know encroached upon I think my success and the uh, entity's success because you had people well-meaning people from New York who were my bosses uh, making decisions in Chicago and really didn't understand Chicago. So, you know, I'm kind of creating a trail of dissatisfaction with big corporations. Um, I left Merrill Lynch Realty to be CFO of the second richest guy in Illinois at that time. His name is Dick Duchessois, and he is like 98 years old right now. And he owned Duchessois Industries and Arlington International Racecourse and a bunch of other race courses and some other sports entities. And I worked for him for four years. Okay. And got frustrated um, for the pretty much the same reasons, but um, then decided after all of this corporate experience, the only way that I would have truly have control of my life and my career is to start my own. Sure. And so about 21, 22 years ago, uh, I got into some real estate development and then stumbled onto real estate executive recruiting, which is what I've been in for the last 21, 22 years. And then during that course, we got into um, another business called executive marketing and job finding where an executive finds themselves unemployed and needs help in finding their next job. So that's a long answer to a simple question. No, no, it's a great answer. And, um, and I'm just curious how you stumbled into executive recruiting. Because I mean, you came from doing the Merrill Lynch Realty, which is, is that a division of their banking that was? It's a division placing? of their investment banking out right. of New York. Okay. So they're placing money for investments in real estate, and then you're the CFO of this other company, and then you decided when you were gonna, I imagine that you would have had the ability to choose a variety of different businesses that you wanted to start and run, but you chose executive recruiting, executive marketing, and how did you stumble into it? <laughs> well, I probably chose it for all the wrong reasons, because I'm more of a practical person than a dreamer. In that, um, I wanted something. I wanted a, a fulfilling career where I could work a lot, which I like to do, 
make a lot of money, which I like to do, but have flexibility and control of my career and my schedule. And it's just like, I think it's Barbara Corcoran from uh, Shark Tank. Sure. She said during a Shark Tank episode about a year ago, which resonated with me. And what she said is, I work 80 hours a week or more sometimes, so I don't go ha- have to go back to the corporate world and work 40 hours a week. So, um, so when I got into real estate recruiting, I had met some recruiters who, were from, who owned a recruiting firm from the University of Illinois. Again, we're coming full circle with a lot of my contacts are from Illinois. And they were partners of mine in a real estate development on the north side of Chicago and said, Bob, you'd be really good at recruiting. And I said, yeah, but recruiters really don't know much because when they call me in the past, I didn't think they really knew much and they don't make that much money. And they said they do if they know what they're doing. So I worked for them for six months, was extremely successful and said, forget the corporate world, forget real estate development, which is difficult. I'm going to be a recruiter. Yeah. So about 22 years ago, started recruiting in the basement of my house in Western Springs, Illinois. And now we're 13 offices, uh, 11 in the United States, one in Toronto and one in Paris. And we've got about 63 people. So, so that's great. That, that, you hit on a point, which is why I wanted to have you come on the podcast. Is I think most professionals have had the experience of being called by a recruiter. You feel the office, you feel the call at the office, and they say, "Hey, we have this opportunity." What it, you know? And you, I just always wonder. And I've been through, or I've had these calls so many times, I don't even return them anymore. I'm not even interested in picking up the phone sometimes. <laughs> um, but there must be a level of them that. Uh, that do very well and know what they're doing. And so I just want to know what what do you think it is that separates your company from some of your competitors? Well, I, I think the key thing with the recruiting business, the executive recruiting business, is first of all, you have to get the business. So a CEO, um, right now my company has about eight chief operating officer positions we're recruiting for around the country. Um, three in LA, one in Chicago, one we just picked up in Dallas, three in New York for real estate companies, and a couple in, in um, South Florida. So when these come up, um, where I'm usually called, being the head of the firm, by a CEO of a company who says, I need this position filled. So we go and present to them as to why we're qualified to search for that COO for them. And if you know what you're talking about, you'll get the assignment. So based upon going back to what I said at the beginning of our conversation, which is the experience, the invaluable experience and miserable experience I got at Arthur Anderson, Merrill Lynch, Duchess Y Industries, and also being a re- in recruiting, almost all of that exclusively real estate um, lends to make a good presentation to a CEO as to why we can find the right person for their organization. 
So typically we get the top assignments because when we present to executives who are looking for other executives, Mm -hmm. we know what we're talking about. That's the first thing. We understand their industry. We understand the position and what this position needs to have done for the organization. Then most importantly, we understand where to find those people. So the CEO isn't sitting in an interview. And this is what I think we're good at, is a lot of uh, CEOs, their complaints about recruiters are, Bob, I sit in an interview with another recruiter who has presented some candidates to me, and within the first two minutes I know, wrong person. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, I'm the one that should be doing that, not you. The candidates we're going to send you to interview for your important position, I can almost guarantee, almost is the active word, that you won't be sitting in an interview and saying within the first two minutes, wrong person. So when you can understand their industry, understand the position and the importance of that position within that organization, and you know where to find good people, you're successful. All right. Well, what types of companies are looking for jobs right now? What types of companies are out there? Are they institutional investors? Are they REITs? What sort of companies are you working with? Well, right now, uh, we're working, uh, by the way, after the election, and I don't know if it's because, and I don't think it's because of uh, who became president, uh, the search business, uh, with a couple of exceptions, has exploded for real estate talent in the United States. Interesting. Um, The two areas that are a little, uh, one area that's a little bit flat right now is New York. And New York has been flat for about the last year and a half. And the reason for that is it was on fire um, in 13, 14, and 15, and went flat in 16 and 17. And Chicago recently has been a little bit flat, but everywhere else around the country, it's exploding. And I think that's evidenced by the amount of cranes you see, and I've never seen so much development, and I'm an old guy, Um, I've never seen so much development since the 1980s. So I think what we're seeing in the real estate talent pool is that all that development and investment, and there's a lot of foreign money coming into the United States right now, uh, that is fueling this boom in real estate and the subsequent hiring of talent. A big area is we have a lot of Chinese private equity companies. Yes. Uh, that are our clients in a couple in Chicago, uh, like five in New York, and three in LA. And that is fueled by, and people in the know have seen this, is there's um, the wealthy people in China are trying to figure out various and sundry ways of getting their money out of China. Right. And um, I think the United States is a beneficiary of that. But getting back to your original question of, you know, who are our clients? They are all the, they are institutions and REITs, but we're seeing right now a lot of activity with the medium sized to larger privately held real estate company. Example. Uh, We just picked up a chief operating officer search for one of the largest privately held industrial real estate companies in the United States based out of Dallas. 
Uh, they have grown so much that the CEO now needs a chief operating officer. Uh, we're doing, uh, and so that's industrial, and industrial is a very hot asset type right now. We have three chief operating officers for large privately held, and most of them are family held. The, um, the father started the family industrial acquisition business 40 years ago, and now it's starting to grow again. So their families, the sons have, take have taken over in a lot of respects, and now they need a good number two person. Right. And we're seeing it a lot of industrial and multifamily apartments. Retail is slow. Office is okay. Um, Self-storage is exploding. We've, we're doing a, a COO yes. for self-storage in Florida. So that's where most of our clients are coming. Yeah, so what other types of positions are you looking for for your clients? Because I, I would imagine there's only so many CEO jobs around, and at some point it's a merry-go-round. One person moves, and then yep. another person moves, and another position opens. And then you just talked about how there's positions where companies are growing, and so they need to slot in someone underneath the CEO. Um, what other types of positions are they out our company's looking for right now? Well, we also have about, and I've looked at our inventory right before I, I came to our meeting today, is um, we have, I think, nine CFO searches, um, chief financial officer searches. We've got four chief investment officer searches. Below that, um, a lot of asset management and senior property management searches. Um, we have a lot of capital market searches. And what uh, capital markets is a nice way of say, saying equity raiser. I want to hire a person to go out and find me money so that I can buy real estate or develop real estate. And um, this past, in 2016, we did five capital market searches, which are essentially go out and find me institutions that will invest alongside of me or high net worth or family offices who will we can line up to be our potential investors for future projects. So uh, capital markets and then lastly is just pure acquisition people. Um, uh, the marketplace right now in the hot asset classes which are self-storage, industrial and apartments um, it's getting so hot that they need more acquisition people to source more deals. And we're seeing a lot of activity there. So when a company comes to you and they say, we need a capital markets person to help us raise money, we need an acquisitions uh, personnel to help locate acquisitions, uh, what's your process? How do you determine from the pool of candidates available a, who would be a quality person to go for, and um, and how do you actually try to connect those two parties? Well, um, we use technology, uh, and essentially the way that we look for people is if we get a capital market search, um, and we have one right now in Los Angeles, um, we will identify maybe a hundred companies in California where this person might exist and you know I tell people you know most things in life people want to make it complicated 
but it's not. <laughs> right. So we send in a researcher to find out who those people are, who are capital raisers for competitors. And it could be 100 competitors. And um, the researcher will find out uh, who those people are and will send them a, you know, a little uh, email saying, hi, we're 2024 site executive search. We're looking for a capital markets person. Might you know of someone? And we will be calling you in the next couple of days to discuss this job. Then when we get somebody interested that we think is relatively good, we will evaluate their credentials. Now, what's the best kind of credentials that our clients, that I recommend our clients to hire? Right. What we look for initially is a good education. And it doesn't have to be an Ivy League education. I tell people it has to be from a top 40 or even a top 80 school. because typically, um, and, and I'll say this openly, um, elite schools don't um, produce the best employees. Oh, as a fellow Illinois guy, this is a great <laughs> school, but you know it's not Harvard. Uh, but I love to hear you say that. And and I think statistics and studies have shown that the Wall Street Journal came out about three years ago with the HR. Uh, had an HR study for where are your best applicants coming from? The people that you've hired for these companies and where are the best people coming from that you've hired over the last five years? In the top 20, there was only one Ivy League school. So I tell my, my clients, we'll present Ivy League type people, but as long as they have a reputable education with a fairly good grade point average, we think they should be considered. So that's the foundation. So if we're talking to our kids out there that are 17, 18, and they didn't get into the Ivy League, their life is not over. They can still um, have a, a very good job later um, in life. Um, uh, I, uh, you're speaking to a very experienced recruiter. I totally agree with what you said, and I can um, dovetail on that a little bit later on Great. in our conversation. So foundation is a good education from a reputable school. Secondly is what we look for is good institutional experience, whether it be at you know a Merrill Lynch or an Arthur Anderson or a PWC Goldman Sachs or some institution where someone has learned the right way of doing things. Sure. And then we're looking for, at least in most of our clients that are medium-sized companies, somewhat of an entrepreneurial spirit. So good foundational education, some institutional um, experience, five to 10 years, and then maybe work for some smaller companies so that smart person, institutional experience, smaller companies, entrepreneurial. Typically when you get someone who has been all big type of corporate experience, and I'm here I'm being derogatory again towards big corporate experience, <laughs> we have found people that 
Um, they're not a roll up your sleeves kind of, they'll do anything to get the job done. When someone during an interview says, gee, you know, I'm going to be your COO, uh, and we go, great, and they go, well, I need to hire two people on day two after I start to get all these other things done. We're thinking too corporate, not roll up your sleeves, and not if the going gets tough, they might have to do the work also. Right. So those are the types of people that we recommend to our clients. That is interesting. Um, and do you find that uh, you get a lot of good feedback when you are able to place those clients or those prospective employees? Like that, that seem, you've been doing this for 20 years now. Uh, you must be continuing to have that approach and it must be getting a lot of good feedback on it. Well, we do get good feedback. And the reason we have a lot of longtime clients who have been with my firm almost 20 years. But I tell people, and this is somewhat controversial, um, we get good feedback from our candidates, but corporate America is a bit dysfunctional. Sure. And we have some clients that I love those, I love these clients. And we've made a lot of money off of those clients with fees and, the, and you know, hiring people and replacing people. But they're dysfunctional, so therefore there's a lot of turnover within those companies. And uh, CEOs who are the dysfunctional ones know that, but don't fix the issues. So what keeps me busy and what keeps us busy is the dysfunctionality of some of these companies. Now, people ask me, Bob, not everyone can be dysfunctional. And I give them some statistics we've put together. Very unscientific. Okay. And we think 80% of corporate America is dysfunctional. 80%? Right. Okay. 20% are good places to work. Now, of that 80% I mentioned, half of that, or 40%, are just batshit crazy. There you just go. nut, crazy places to work. And we try not to have those companies as our clients. The other 40% are dysfunctional enough to kind of drive you nuts, but are still okay places to work. So when I look at corporate America, 80% is dysfunctional, but 40 per, half of that, which is 40% of the 100%, are not good places to work, plain and simple. In what respect do you mean they're not good places? Um, the average work week uh, ranges from 60 to 80 hours a week. Um, I have clients who say, I don't know why this person left, Bob. Uh, they were doing a good job here, and I tell my clients the truth, which sometimes gets us fired, and I tell them is, gee, uh, Jim, um, you know, we hired this acquisition guy for you, and he called me up right before he left and said, um, I know I made, Jim, last year, 4.6, I'm talking about a real life situation now. Yeah. I know we made Jim last year, I made him $4.6 million on two deals I did for him that he ultimately sold and made 4.6. 
and my bonus, you know, I make a 225 base, and my bonus was 175 grand. Uh, and someone across the street has just offered me equity in deals. And Jim doesn't pay equity. And I say, Jim, you're not competitive. Yeah. Well, Bob, that's my model. And I just say, you know what? I'm not going to change your model of how you employ people and how you invest. But if people leave for money, don't blame me. Now, you want us to replace the guy at another 33%? Of course we will. Yeah, that's so, what we're here for. So um, that's why people leave. People leave because of... Um, long hours, um, below average compensation, and then finally is because they're not treated well. Yeah, I'd say those but, are, yeah. that's it. <laughs> Money, working too hard, and am I appreciated? Those Ex- are the three things. Exactly. And you would think certain companies would, after they've had significant turnover, would fix those problems. No. <laughs> Those 40% will not. And in some ways, it's good for my firm. Yeah, understood. And the 20% of companies that are good companies, what do you think makes them the good companies? Is it just as simple as they're not overworking people, they're paying them a fair compensation, and they feel appreciated? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, now, it. now, I do tell people, uh, executives, and I have certain executives who I sit in meetings with or interviews with, and they say, gee, um, I only work 40 hours a week because I'm very efficient, and anyone who works more than 40 hours a week, uh, they're either inefficient or they don't have to work that much. And those people usually get excluded. Because in this day and age, to be an executive at almost any company, it's a 50-hour work week. Let's face it. And you're on call. You may be on call 24-7 for catastrophes. And occasionally, you may have to work 60 or more. But if we get people on the other side of the spectrum that says anyone who works more than 40 is inefficient, um, that's a nice way of saying I'm lazy. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe 40 hours a week 50 years ago might have cut it. It won't cut it now. And we've also had people say, gee, on Saturdays, uh, I shut off my phone. I'm not going to take any emails. And I tell them that won't fly. And they go, well, Bob, somebody, you know, they need a day. You need a day off. And my response to them is this. If my client is paying you over a half million dollars a year to a million dollars and there's an emergency on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon, you're available or they're not going to pay you that kind of money. Now, yeah. if you're making 40000 bucks a year, shut your phone off. I get it. So it works both ways. Right. And I I don't think what you're asking is unreasonable. You know, when you said 40 hours are going to cut it, I couldn't wait to hear how many hours you're going to say is reasonable. Acceptable. And you said 50. You didn't say it's got to be 90 or it's got to be 70 or 80. You know, and 50 is, uh, I think that that's a reasonable request for someone with that kind of great responsibility of being a a C-level executive. Exactly. Exactly. Well, should we talk about the flip side of the coin? Because your your firm uses language of executive marketing, which I am 
which is new to me, and I, I like the concept. Let's talk about it. What is executive marketing? Well, let me, uh, the origin, well, executive marketing and job finding is essentially that. It's um, an executive may find themselves unemployed and not know how to look for a job. So what we um, tell them for a fee is let uh, third party or subcontract out your job search function to us. We'll do it, not you. And we'll do it in a much more efficient way. And most executives initially say is, well, Bob, I've been told that the way to look for a job is to network, network, network. And networking is, you know, you might go to a coffee or a seminar or go to an alumni association or call all your friends and say, I'm unemployed. Do you know of anyone? Right. That's the traditional way of looking for a job. And I tell people in all of the seminars I do around the country, you know what? That works. You should do that. But let me tell you what the problem is with that. It could work tomorrow or two or three years from now but it works. And what you need to do and what we will do for you if you subcontract out your job search to us is we will market you right, to a broad array of executives and companies who might be interested in your services. The typical response from that is everybody out there who is important knows I'm unemployed and knows what I can do. And my response is, you may know of 10% of those people. You don't know the other 90. And I would also say that 10% that you think knows what you're capable of, it's probably more like 1%. (laughs) Because in my experience, you know, it probably took me five five to eight years before even my parents realized what kind of an attorney I was. <laughs> so, I mean, your friends and family, you may think that they have a clue what you what you do or what you're capable of doing, but a very small percentage actually has a good handle on what you can do. And that goes, and I don't think that's just specific to lawyers, I think that's all industries. <clears throat> True. And I like the, your phrase of marketing because it, that makes a lot of sense to me because you are a product and you're trying to sell your product. And what other business would you have that you would expect to just release a product and not market that product? So you're gonna whether you do it yourself or hire somebody to do it, you gotta have to. You're going to have to market that product. You got it exactly. And when we pitch um, CEOs or unemployed CEOs or unemployed COOs or other executives, they initially say, you know, I don't need this service right now. And what we do is we present all of the things we can do for them. And then we sit back and wait for the level of pain to go up. And typically what happens in three months or six months, if they're sitting at their home office desk with no job prospects, I or one of my consultants get a call and say, where do I sign up? So, um, but it was started from the 2002 uh, dot-com, you know, bust when real estate went down with that also. And we found that friends of our firm and past clients were people we have made money from who've chosen us as their search firm said, Bob, I need a job, can you help me? And we helped them find the job. 
And after helping about 15 people for nothing, I thought there's a business here. <clears throat> so we did it on a very small scale starting from 2003 to 2008. And what happened in 2008 was the Great Recession where my firm had like 120 searches, executive searches going on in 2008. And by the end of two th the first quarter of 2009, 120 searches turned into 27. Wow. So we had to do something. And the flip side of that was helping people find jobs. So in the last nine years, we've probably, I say eight years, we've done about 360 placements in executive marketing. People paying us a fee to take over their job search and find them a new executive job. So we've done about 360 placements and the business has been extremely um, active and lucrative in Europe, the Middle East, and the in Southeast. Interesting. Now, you may want to ask why. Why? Okay. Um, corporations <clears throat> tell people, gee, our CEO has international experience, and you should go to Europe or Abu Dhabi or Southeast Asia to fill in that void in your resume. And... In theory, it sounds like a great idea. Right. In practice, typically, it's a horrible idea. Sure, why? The reason being is this. I tell people who are considering that, you'll probably won't be CEO of that company, number one. Number two, if you go to Abu Dhabi um, and stay there five years and make a good amount of money, and then want to come back to the United States at the same money you were making between 500 to a, or a million dollars a year, you will not duplicate it. And they go, well, no, I'll have the international experience. If when I come back to New York or Chicago or LA, I'll be worth more, at least the same money. And I go, you'll be worth much less. Why is that? Um, they're going to ask a couple of simple questions. When was the last deal you've done in the United States? Well, five years ago. That's right. the first question. Gee, who do you, you know, all these contacts you had in the United States, do you still have them? Well, no, they're kind of five years old. Yeah. Um, gee, have you been keeping up or when was the last, you know, transaction or analysis you did in the United States? Well, I've been doing things in Europe, in the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. Uh, you're stale in the United States. No one's going to pay you that money anymore. They're not. Right. That makes total sense. And people say, well, Bob, that, you know, that happens rarely. And I'm, I'm going to say this. It happens 80% of the time. We had a big executive marketing and job finding assignment for a corporation about three years ago. Uh, right during the crash, Morgan Stanley Real Estate Investment Banking transferred about eight people to London to because European markets were still doing okay. Right. Um, they transferred eight people and then right around 2013, Morgan Stanley Real Estate Investment Banking in London 
had a change in their head and got rid of all of the US-based guy, Morgan Stanley people in London. All those guys wanted to come back to, the, to New York, essentially. Morgan Stanley New York Real Estate Investment Banking said, all of our seats are filled. No seats. <laughs> they tried to get jobs. When was the last deal you've done in the United States? Well, I haven't done one in four years. Yeah. We took them, um, we took, of the eight, we took six as clients. Four of those people had to take, I'd say, a 30 to 40% reduction in comp to get back into the game. Um, two of those people did not maintain what they were making. So okay. the, the, the fallacy many times of you need international experience to round out, you know, and our, all of our top executives have that, um, in practicality, usually doesn't work. So we have set up an office in Paris to catch the American, uh, the uh, U.S. nationals working in Europe and the Middle East who find themselves in that position. And they need someone on the ground in the United States marketing them. Sure. That's it. So what kind of marketing services are you doing? Essentially, what we do in executive marketing is four basic things. Um, we assign them a researcher with my company and a consultant to guide them through the job search process. But then the first thing we do is we career coach, guide, and counsel. And because we're involved in financial services and real estate, we can sit down with someone and we know the ins and outs of their career and the, their industry. So we can bring them down to ground level when they talk about jobs, gee, I want this job, that job, and this job. And we tell them, oh, well, there's only three of those in the world. Yeah. And you're not gonna be one of those three, so let's talk about something that's realistic that fits for your career. And what we're looking for is some work-life balance. We don't wanna send you to a sweatshop. Something that you'll like, something that pays well, and something that you can stay at for 10 years or longer. Right. The second thing we do is we create their resume or revise their resume because I see in the marketplace 90 to 95% of the resumes that I see, and I see like 200 of them every day, are poorly written. Now, it's amazing. Um, yeah. Well, uh, what t tell me about the resumes. For somebody looking for a C-level position or even not even a C-level position, it, do people are people use the word resume or CV? Take your pick, resume or CV. Okay, no preference there. And then is it still one-page rule or are we going, are we going if, longer than one page? If you're at the executive level with more than 10 or 15 years experience, it should be two pages. Uh, three pages is kind of okay. Anything longer than three pages, no good. Yeah, it's a book at that point. But what makes for a good resume, the definition of what makes for a good resume is this. Simple to understand. Um, companies that I've heard of, titles that I like, but getting back to simple to understand because you only have five to 10 seconds in a human scan of your resume. 
And if it isn't simple to understand and a little bit compelling or sexy, you get deleted. Yeah. Now, people have said, well, Bob, don't people read my resume? And I go, no. No one, 90% of the people will not read your resume unless within a five to 10 second scan, they understand what you do, simple, and it's a little bit compelling or else they'll delete you. Now, some people put together functional resumes instead of a chronological resume of where they've been. Functional resumes are, at, at my level, an immediate delete. We don't even look at it. Tell, tell me more about what a functional resume is. A functional is resume starts, is, has at the end of the resume where they've been in the titles very small but talks about in the first page and probably the second page what they're good at okay so many times it disguises multiple job hops yeah right by saying this is what i'm good at and usually functional resumes are a method to disguise multiple job hops or a lack of background and usually people delete them the other thing is People spend a lot of time writing cover letters, which I tell them are a complete waste of time at my level. We don't read them. And they go, and I've had people at some of my MBA seminars say, well, don't you want to know what my hopes and aspirations are for my career and where I've been? I go, well, I can tell where you've been from your resume. Your cover letters basically are fluff I don't have time for that. Yeah. So what we encourage people to do is a short little blip in an email of here I am, here's my education, here's what I do. My resume is attached. Sure. So the second thing we do is we create resumes that are compelling and simple to understand. And we create more than one resume because we might have a client whose skills fit in different areas of real estate or different areas of finance. So therefore, we want a resume that fits those different areas. We have some clients that say, well, this resume, one size fits all, and I go, no, it won't. Because if the resume doesn't fit that particular industry segment and that particular job, typically the people looking at that resume aren't experienced enough to know that you might fit. So you've got to write a resume that does fit because most of the people who screen resumes for executives or even some people in my own firm don't know quality from not quality because they don't have the experience. So multiple resumes that fit the industries in which they, they're qualified for. The third thing is we interview coach extensively because we promise people in our program I will have you you know you've had one interview in three months in our program you'll have a minimum of 10 to 15 interviews in three months but I can't promise you a job because I'm not in the interview with you right and interview coaching is essential Um, I'd say 50% of our clients are good interviewers the other 50% uh, couldn't sell um, blankets to naked Eskimos. Uh, <laughs> they just can't do that. Um, interviewing is an art, 
and a science. And the key to interviewing is um, presenting your qualifications well, not gushing, and then answering what I call the gateway questions. Because if you don't answer the gateway questions very well, the interview won't go very far. What are those gateway uh, questions? You're stealing, <laughs> stealing the words from my mouth. Uh, a gateway question is, gee, uh, you just left Goldman Sachs. Why? Yeah, you need a compelling story. And I tell people, if uh, you don't give a good why, at least with me or every other experienced interviewer out there, you're done. I may stay in the interview with you to be polite another 30 minutes, but if your question to why you left uh, Bank of America, well, I left for philosophical reasons. Well, not good enough. Sure. So we interview coach extensively and that's the most important part of the program. And the last thing we do is this. I ask people if they're networking and I ask them, well, how many contacts are you making a week to find a job? Well, I made five good contacts this, this week and I tell them um, networking may work tomorrow or it may work two years from now the way you're going. Um, to, in a good job search, you should be making 100 to 200 contacts a week, either via the phone or email. Wow, 100 to 200 contacts. Now, I personally think, and people go, well, gee, so what you're saying, Bob, it's a numbers game in finding your next job. That's exactly it. Right. I've built, um, my team and I have built a multi-million dollar business based upon sending emails all over the place, all over the world. And a lot of people out there say email marketing doesn't work. And I would tell them, I think you're wrong. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, that makes total sense to me. Anything that I'm trying to do, I try to analyze by numbers. If I have... Um, somebody says they have one prospective client to me they don't have any prospective client you need 10 prospective clients in order to have one prospective client because it's just so many, you meet too many people that have opportunities and it's just um either they'll forget about you or it's not a good fit and there's nothing wrong with that but you, you need 10 contacts in order to have have one good contact a um, couple things just really quickly off your four points is just it's interesting to hear that even at the upper levels that you're dealing with, the people really only glance at the resumes. I think I would have I would have guessed that resumes get a little bit of a, a more thorough look, but I'm sure they get tons. So you really can only digest a resume for so long. And then um, I also think that it kind of goes back to what you were saying about having multiple resumes go back goes back to how we started the conversation with. Uh, sometimes we both explain what we do to other people depending on what we think might be uh, more receptive <laughs> to the listener. And I think you constantly need to be adjusting your story and the way you're presenting yourself, um, yourself or your business or whatever it is that you're trying to do uh, in order to tailor it to the person or the business that you're trying to make contact with. Right. I agree. I agree. I mean, it's, it's 
got to fit the you know your message has to fit the listener and and you know typically in a resume most of the people who screen out resumes to give to people like me or an executive of the company um, if you ask them gee uh, explain the job you're screening these resumes for 90 percent of them couldn't explain the job but yet they're the screeners so they're for simple compelling works all right well bob what do you think is the uh the hottest area right now that you're seeing in the job market well the real uh you know financial services for us is strong but real estate has exploded in the last uh couple of months um and primarily is, you know, in two areas right now, is capital markets, equity raisers, people looking for money, and also acquisitions people uh, are at a premium right now. People are looking for deals, are looking whether it be for development deals, although by going into all of these major cities that I go into, I've never seen so much building in my life, and I'm surprised, I think banks are, are now starting to hold back on development loans, on construction loans. Really? Um, and, and the reason being is, you know, you, um, you know, the most cranes up in the United States right now is Chicago. Uh, this, everywhere. Yeah, number two is Seattle. I've never, I was just in Seattle two weeks ago. I've never seen, and we've done business in Seattle for 20 years, I've never seen so much activity in my life. Um, development people, two years ago were really hot. Now the development is starting and is up, not so much anymore, but it's mostly deal people, find me a building to buy, or find me a raw piece of land to develop, and then um, capital markets or equity raisers, find me some money, those types of jobs. Are those private equity companies that are looking for the capital markets people? I'm just trying to picture what type of company would be looking to just grab somebody to say, go find me some money for a fund? Well, mostly, you know, private equity and investment banking are not growth industries. In the, I haven't seen it in the real estate and financial services world in the last, I'd say, five to six years. Um, why is that? I think that's because the competition to get into those types of companies and to work for those, it's so coveted that the competition there is very difficult and people um, want to get away from those atmospheres. Typically the capital raisers or the equity raisers are a medium sized to large privately held real estate company that um, has their pool of either high net worth or family offices as investors, or they might have two or three institutional investors that invest in their deals. And what you're seeing now a little bit is the institutions are starting to pull back because they see all this activity going on. Yes. And to make up maybe a loss of those institutional investors, they want someone who is going to focus on finding me more money from other sources. The other thing is, 
um, institutional money to invest in a real estate project, whether it be a development or an existing asset, comes with a lot of strings attached to it, typically, um, and comes with a lot of scrutiny and oversight as you go through that process. And a lot of our clients are looking at that and saying, you know, is there easier money out there that doesn't have all the strings attached to it? And a lot of people want to tap the family office market, which is getting bigger, and tap the high net, just individual high net worth people. Sure. So it's people, you know, we did one last year in LA, is they want to tap into the, for real estate investment, to the entertainment market uh, for people who can afford a 500,000 to a million dollar investment every year or every other year. And if you can get 200 of those people together, or 300, it'll take you five years to do it. You've got a resource for your deals. Very interesting. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, we talked a little bit about what makes a good executive in your mind, or what you look for in types of as a candidate. Uh, do you have any advice for young people trying to get into real estate and trying to eventually become an executive in real estate? Well, the advice that I would have is to have a good financial background. Sure. And, and that starts with um, uh, analysis, and that starts with having a good perspective of understanding the demographics, and I was gonna say the dirt. But, um, you know, real estate, a, a lot of people, you know, we do, uh, we have clients that are hedge funds uh, in New York, and quant traders in New York and Chicago, and they want to make things complex when they're not. Uh, and they use a lot of industry jargon that I have my recruiters who go along in a presentation saying, well, what did they mean by when they said this, this, and that? And when I explain it to them, they go, that's pretty simple. And I go, yeah, yeah. everything is kind of pretty simple. So. I would advise them going into the real estate business or trying to be a real estate executive is a couple of things. Having a good finance or mathematical background in college, whether it be in finance uh, or math or accounting, to understand the numbers and how they're put together and then how to analyze. Then from there to go to an institution to be an analyst. And essentially, if you're an analyst, you're an Excel or an Argus spreadsheet jockey. Right. You're running numbers for, they're thinking about buying this building or doing this development. And you're the, back, you're the person in the cubicle running all of the numbers and the financial projections to make sure this is a good investment for the company. Doing that for five years, but then gravitating out of that cubicle and those numbers to understand the dirt, understand the demographics and what's driving the investment, which is leasing, which is demographics of what's in that area. Then when you do that, analysis, asset management, property management, and leasing, by the time you're hopefully 35 or 40, you've gotten good foundational knowledge to make those decisions as an executive. But the wonderful thing about real estate, as opposed to a lot of other professions, is this. 
Um, real estate is all people and is based on ideas and is based on, I went and hunted this great deal down and you can be an entrepreneur. Yes. And, and if you, uh, the thing that I loved about real estate and getting into it um, as an executive recruiter and that I found out is um, most of my clients started off, whether it be 60 years ago or 40 years ago or 10 years ago, with I worked for an institutional company. I found three deals while I was working for them for my own portfolio. I lined up some investors and now I have my own business that now has 40 assets and 70 people because I had the vision of these three assets where I lined up my high net worth or maybe an institution to back me to buy this real estate and operate this real estate, be successful, and then grow the company. Yeah, I've seen so, that happen a few times already. People I know. Yeah. And, and it's, um, you know, being an alumnus of Illinois, um, there are a number, number of real estate entrepreneurs in, in my fraternity that, you know, uh, one of them built this building, which is, right. which is my fraternity brother. We're at 311 South Wacker. Jerry Castellney, when he was with Lincoln Properties, built this building. Then he was with Lincoln Properties, left, set up his own deals, and now he owns a company in Oak Brook. I'm explaining Jerry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I hope that he's listening because he's on my list of people to get on the podcast. <laughs> I've already approached a few people at their organization and uh, starting to work my way into it. But I hopefully he'll come and tell us that. the story yeah. of how he, he bought and built this building that I've worked in for 12 years. So Jerry is, you know, um, finance background, uh, good foundational experience in Chicago with Rubloff Leasing and then with Lincoln Properties and Analysis, ran Lincoln Properties in Chicago, built this building and many others in Oak Brook and in downtown Chicago, then started his own company with his own deals. Right. That's our client. Yeah. And um, our, our one of our first guests who did our second and third podcast, Rob Walters, is one of Jerry's uh, protégés who started his own development right. company, Quattro Development, yeah. in 2007, 2008. Well, Bob, do you have anything else that you want to go over today? Well, I've probably talked way too much, and I apologize for that. Not nearly enough. Yeah. Not nearly enough. And I, I really it. appreciate uh, getting together, but... Um, um, the, you know, the thing I want to say about um, dealing with executive recruiters is um, very few of them will call you back. But if you contact 100 of them, five will. <laughs> sure, so the numbers game works both ways. Yes. And then in the job search is networking works. can work tomorrow or three years from now, but you're in a marketing campaign. And if you treat your job search like a marketing campaign, it'll go a lot quicker and you'll be a lot more satisfied with the jobs you come up with if you market yourself. So that's it. That's great advice, Bob. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me.
nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to, for use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.